0: Best-selling author uh, Malcolm Gladwell, also the host of an enormously popular podcast called Revisionist History, wrote a fascinating book on the David and Goliath story a number of years ago. You can actually get the gist of the book's thesis in his 15- to 20-minute TED Talk, which you can find easily online. Gladwell's thesis goes roughly like this. Despite what you think a careful reading of the story would indicate that in fact David is not the underdog in this battle. Now, the reasons for this, there's a few. Goliath, who's around 9 feet, and this sort of height means that he has a a, a medical condition that usually comes with a tumor Pressing on the pituitary gland, there was a man named Robert Wadlow who died in 1940, who was eight feet eleven inches tall, and Wadlow had the tumor condition. The famous wrestler Andre the Giant, he had the tumor condition as well, and the tumor can affect one's sight. And there are indications in the text read closely that Goliath may not see particularly well, at least until David gets pretty close. But even apart from the medical background, Goliath is slow. He's almost immobile. He's led out by this shield bearer, his armor is very heavy. He's dressed for infantry style, close or even hand-to-hand combat. And David is young and agile. He is never going to engage Goliath up close. He's like an ancient artillery fighter known as slingers or archers. And these slings that were used were not little children's toys. A skilled user of one of these slings could hurl a rock... And Gladwell points out that the rocks in the Valley of Elah are particularly, where this conflict occurs, are particularly dense rocks. And that a slinger with skill like David could get the sling going six or seven revolutions per second before letting the rock go at somewhere between 100 and 150 miles an hour. That is faster than any major league pitcher can throw a baseball. So that David's weapon is basically the ancient equivalent of a modern handgun. So Goliath has quite literally brought a sword to a gunfight. And Gladwell concludes, any pre-fight analysis, if it were careful enough, would set David as the favorite. David was not. David was not a giant underdog. The giant was the underdog. It's a provocative reading, and it may be right from a military tactical point of view, but it's not right for the reasons Gladwell thinks it's right, to which I'll get later. But it at least has the virtue of questioning and breaking from the usual approach to the text, which causes some to shudder, and which goes something along these lines. David, the underdog, had courage and confronted Goliath. So you too should have courage to confront the Goliaths in your life. And you can fill in the rest, right? Everybody's got Goliath. What are your Goliaths? What smooth stones has God given you? And so forth. Now, the underlying point there perhaps is right, but it's a, grievous misreading of the focus of this text. It is certainly not what this text is about. The text cannot be read primarily as a story of individual courage, though it is that. But it's much more than that, and the point is not that you can be like David. There are, I think, three basic frames. Think of them as like concentric circles that widen out, which are necessary in approaching this text. The first, the the inner circle, is the encounter, the personal encounter between David and Goliath. The text as it stands, if you simply read it, tells this story. The second, wider circle, is where we ask what does this mean? What is its place in the history of Israel and Israel's national life? And the third, or widest circle, is where we ask how this story functions in the grand sweep of God's redemptive purposes. And so we can look at the text then under three headings that correspond to these three circles. David and Goliath, David and Israel, David and Christ. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. So first, David and Goliath. We won't be going through the text in order nor will I refer much to specific verses. I'm going to assume everybody knows the story fairly well. So Israel and the Philistines, they're they're lined up for battle, each side on a mountain with a valley in between, the Valley of Elah. So the scene would have that the camps of both sides would be up near the top of the mountain, and the respective battle lines would be drawn near the bottom. The camps would be on the top, and the battle lines would be near the bottom of the mountain. And so Goliath strides forth from the Philistine side and he's called a champion, which means a man in between. Something like a mediator. He's in between the camps and he proposes this form of representative warfare. Basically, one man fights for each side in a battle to the death. Right? The side whose champion loses becomes the other side's slaves. And as the text says, Goliath is around nine feet tall. But we've already seen in 1 Samuel, especially last week, that we should take no notice of someone's stature. Saul was tall of stature and is becoming an abject failure. David's older brother Eliab, he was tall and handsome. And Saul, Samuel thought, well, this must be the chosen king. We are not to look on appearances, especially the appearances of formidable enemies. And a large part of David's courage, and yes, David is courageous, consists then in seeing aright. Picking up from last week's text, right? Not as man sees, but as the Lord sees. One could imagine, perhaps like Gladwell imagines, David sizing things up and saying, hmm, who's the real underdog here? Goliath's armor, right? it's described at great length. It's a parody at how much attention is given to this armor. It's a parody of the might of the nations and their, and their military trust. He has a coat of armor that weighs 125 pounds, a javelin, a spear with a 15-pound head. He's got the shield-bearer in front for additional protection. And he publicly defies Israel's armies. Six times in the text, the word for defy or mock or insult is used. And he goes on with this taunting for 40 days, morning and evening. I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. And the text tells us that Saul and all Israel were dismayed, greatly afraid. And this this fear is a failure in seeing. The seeing theme is is splashed over in chapter 17. The men of Israel saw this man and fled from him, we're told. They said, Have you seen? The man who has come up? Fear is born in us from seeing a situation out of proportion. And into this terror, David appears. He's, he's running back and forth, doing this ordinary job from the front, back to the duties with his father's sheep. His father sends him back to the front with some supplies for his brothers and his, their commander. David drops off the supplies and he hears Goliath taunting. And the text has these very pregnant words. At the end of verse 23, it says, and David heard him. This is a new event in the 40-day period. David hears him, and then David speaks for the first time in the Bible. Not for the first time in his life, but literally in the Bible, David has been silent, and he talks. And he wants to know what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel. You can already see that he looks at the situation differently. He had heard among the Israelite camp that Saul had offered great riches. He had offered his daughter in marriage. And he had offered liberty, probably liberty, freedom from taxes, for the family of the one who defeats Goliath. And then David has another question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's opening sentences in the Bible strike a decidedly theological note. This is the first mention of God in the narrative. And it's of enormous importance. In David's way of seeing things, and it's all about seeing things, it's not Goliath's stature that matters. It's his covenant status. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's not unbeatable. He's just uncircumcised. How's that for looking at this battle? He is not unbeatable. He's just uncircumcised. And he's defying the armies of the living God. Unlike everyone else on the mountainside, David thinks that these taunts do not terminate on Israel's army, but on Israel's God. And he is concerned with the honor and the fame and the renown of Yahweh. He is theocentric at a time of national amnesia among the armed forces. Which don't appear to be particularly interested in God's name or God's honor. David is concerned about God's honor being insulted. It is really important that we have the right starting point, and that we ask the right questions about the situations we find ourselves in. God becomes too thin, too distant, too abstract for us. For David, he's the living God. And we need, in situations of fear or crisis... Situations we can't control to start speaking of and talking to God as if he were actually alive. Because, or as if his name was at stake. His name is at stake. To start calling on him as if he were the living God. People that have the living God do not accept the status quo. They don't concede that the outcome is inevitable. They see different like David sees. So David's making some ruckus in the camp and his brother, Eliab, another tall guy, he hears David's questions and he's angry. He's contemptuous. He rebukes his younger brother. There are all kinds of echoes here to the Joseph story. Like Joseph, another Young deliverer, David suffers his family's rejection. Eventually, David is brought to Saul, tells Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of this Philistine, I will go fight him. Right? Saul tries to dissuade him. You're a youth, he's a seasoned warrior. But David speaks of being prepared. He seems totally confident, prepared by his shepherding duty. He says, look, I killed a lion and I killed a bear. I struck them three times. The text says he struck them. Although it doesn't say how it's almost certain that he killed them with his sling. Right. There's there is a lesson here, right? He was faithful and little will be faithful in much. And God rewards your fidelity with greater challenges. And David declares the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice now, in David's mind, it's lion, bear, Philistine. Goliath is a wild beast, an enemy of God. So Saul gives him his blessing and he tries to outfit him. There's this comedic scene where he tries to put Saul's armor on and it's way too big. One of the things that's happening here is Goliath's armor is being parodied and Saul's armor is being parodied. Israel needs a different kind of king with their trust in a different place. David refuses to be a little Goliath, and he refuses to be a little Saul. He refuses to be a king in battle armor like the nations. Instead, he takes the staff, picks up some stones from a brook, puts them in a pouch, and heads off toward Goliath. Sticks and stones, it will turn out, really can break your bones. So they confront one another. And in verse 42, Goliath looks at him and he sees David, sees David, looking surely as a man sees. And he's described there as a youth, ruddy and handsome. Virtually identical to the description of David as his election as king. The Lord sees him as chosen and elect, but Goliath looks on him as a runt, a punk. They exchange a series of insults and threats. Fortunately, this was before the Twitter age. Okay. These tweets resurfaced later. David would have to resign as king. Goliath says to him, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he curses David In the name of his gods. Both men in this battle think this is a fight between their gods. And then he threatens to feed David's flesh. To the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David replies. You come with a spear and a javelin. But I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel. And then David declares that he's going to kill David. Goliath cut his head off. And he's going to feed the dead bodies of the Philistines to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. I remember when my kids were little, uh, and I'm talking like Justin might have been five or six years old, and some of you who are around our age might remember that there were these Bible videos made by Hanna-Barbera. They told, like, little VCR videos, right? And we used to... Watch them. All the Bible stories for the kids. And there was this David and Goliath story. And Justin had this armor set that we had bought him. You know, a shield, a helmet, a a gray plastic sword about this big, right? That he loved this this set of armor. And one day, um, Cheryl was with the kids at some homeschooling function. And another distressed mom comes up to Cheryl and says, My son is crying and upset. And Charles, like, well, what's your son upset about? Well, your son said that he was going to carve my son's flesh and feed it to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. So we were watching this video a lot, you know, and apparently Justin chose to imitate the wrong character in the story. So Cheryl had to smooth things out, but... So they both have threatened to carve one another's flesh. David concludes, the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. And you know the rest. They draw near. David fells him with a sling and a stone. He goes over to the Philistine, who may not yet be dead. Takes the Philist, Goliath's own sword, cuts his head off. And then seeing their champion, their representative, their head beheaded, the Philistines flee. So that's David and Goliath. The second point, quickly, is David and Israel. And here I'll be brief. Um, The mere fact that Israel is still fighting the Philistines is an indication of Saul's failure to subdue them. When Goliath challenges them to choose a man to fight him, that man should be Saul. He's Israel's tall guy, taller than anyone from the shoulders up. Remember, Israel wanted a king to go before them into battle. And Saul, having the spirit depart from him, is cowering in terror. He sees only as man sees. So David rejects Saul's armor. After the 40 days of taunting, which evoke Israel's 40 years in the wilderness... David appears as a new Joshua, unafraid of the giants in the land, ready to lead the conquest. And so the story is crucial in transitioning the nation, as you might guess it would be, from Saul to David. And that brings me to the third and final point, which is the thrust of where this story goes. David and Christ. In this text, in verse 5, Goliath's armor Uses a term which literally means scale armor. Now we've already seen that Goliath is a beast, an intruder in the land, but covered in scales, Goliath is a serpent. Indeed, he's a serpent who will have his head cut off. And this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible Genesis 3. Right? The seed of the woman, the Messiah, will crush the serpent's head. So this is not simply a story about David's courage or even David's faith. It's a fresh episode in an ancient war. Goliath is the seed of the serpent, scaly, bestial, threatening, well-armed, ready for destruction. And David is the seed of the woman who conquers by the weak, and foolish, and yet strangely mighty things. He cuts Goliath's head off without a sword of his own. He uses Goliath's own sword, and that points ahead to the cross, where Jesus defeats the devil through his own weapon, through death itself. That's why the text opened with this representative warfare this man in the middle, this mediator who acts on behalf of his people. That points to Christ as the second Adam. We heard that in the New Testament reading from Romans chapter 5. Jesus then is our champion, your champion, the one in between us and our enemies, who fights on our behalf when we are terrified or cowering or impotent or whatever. He affects our liberation and secures our victory. And Goliath has cursed David in the name of his gods. Right? And David calls upon his God. And so you have a conflict between Yahweh and the gods of the Philistines. And in the middle of that conflict is the seed of the woman. Remember, Goliath in his mocking and cursing has committed a capital offense. In the Torah, in Leviticus 24, it's clear that not only Israelites, but sojourners if they blaspheme, are to be executed. The law requires his stoning, and that, ironically, is how Goliath is killed with stones. Blasphemers will be scoured from the Holy Land. And this decisive victory is a foretaste of Christ the King's scouring the earth of evil at his appearing. In fact, we know this because the language David uses of feeding flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, that's standard judgment language in the Old Testament. It appears for the last time in Revelation chapter 19, where there is a great supper, a kind of anti-Eucharist for the birds. It's a gruesome scene where the birds feast on the carcasses of the enemies of Christ. Like David, Jesus conquers through weakness, not with sword, not with spear. But it's important not to forget that Jesus' weakness is a weakness which is stronger than men. And it's also important to forget that now raised in glory, that same Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And there's a surprise at the end of this text. It turns out that it's a missionary text. David gives a great missionary speech. The goal of the victory, David says at the end of verse 46, is that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That's David's theocentric personality and soul shining forth again. And it's finally, of course, in our Lord Jesus Christ and only in him, only in him as the greater David, that the whole world comes to know of the deliverance wrought by the God of Israel. The God of Israel has, in Jesus, wrought this really stunning, extraordinarily, and apparently improbable victory, of which this text is just a shadow, just a pre-enactment I mean, Jesus looked, as man sees, like a giant underdog. He's up against the Roman state. He's up against the religious authorities. His weapons appeared weak and futile. In fact, we're told his weapons are a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Like David, Jesus came in the name of the God of Israel. Indeed, he came as the God of Israel. And this is why Gladwell is not quite right. Maybe his tactical analysis is right. But this is the reason that Christ was never the underdog. Because he came not only in the name of the God of Israel, he came as the God of Israel. And he was never the underdog, either against the serpent or against the giant Roman state. And now we, who are at the ends of the earth, we declare that there is a God in Israel and that we have seen his conquest. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, Paul says, through Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen.